Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. The snakes in the Everglades. That is a subject that is fascinating and frightening and scary. Some people are all into going out there and catching them. Some people are terrified. We have one that is so passionate about snakes that he calls himself the Snakeaholic. That's Kevin Pavlidis. We've had him on the podcast before. We're going to talk to him about all things alligators, crocodiles, and, of course, the Burmese python that is in the Everglades. Coming up right now. Hi, I'm Kevin Pavlidis, Snakeaholic, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. Kevin, what's going on, man? How are you? Dude, doing good. Staying real, real busy, but uh, loving it, man. Yeah. You, you know, they say uh, you love what you do. You don't feel like you work a day in your life. And I work every day. I'm tired, but I love what I do. So it doesn't even feel like I really have a job. Well, we've had you on the podcast a number of times, but uh, refresh. We've got a lot of new listeners. Tell us what you what what are you doing right now? Same. Are you working at the Everglades Holiday Park? Yeah, yeah. So I got two main jobs, a day job and a night job for the most part. My day job is I'm a professional alligator wrestler and animal handler at Everglades Holiday Park in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, my nighttime job is I catch pythons for South Florida Water Management. And uh, I'm pretty good at both of them, but I work full time (laughs) with Apex Reptiles that just keeps me alive full time with big, dangerous reptiles. Wow. And how often at that place... Do you get new animals? Are they the same kind of alligators, or or do they do they rotate in and out of there? It's a it's a little bit of both. We say that the average we have a couple couple animals that are permanent residents um, uh, for multiple reasons. Some of them are special needs; they have injuries and stuff. They need special care. Others are important for our social hierarchy, and other individuals we just really like their personality. They fit in really well, but we hand pick based on personality and the way that they interact with us, the main ones that we keep there. But we typically say that most of the time we rotate the animals in and out about every year and a half, a gator will stay with us for about a year and a half and rotate out to some of the other parks that we work with. Uh But we do get new ones in fairly steadily. It does change a little bit based on the time of year. So in the winter, we actually get more, uh, even though the activity pattern is less for alligators. So all the alligators that we work with, they're all nuisance alligators, which basically means they cause a problem for people somewhere, somehow. Um, and so in Florida, the way that the trapping works is based on county. So our group has North Broward County. So everything from there, every nuisance alligator that people report in comes to us. And then we get called out to go and get it. Um, so it's based on that. And we actually get more calls in the winter, not because the animals are more active, but because when it's cold, reptiles being ectothermic animals have to sit out in the sunlight. So they very well could have been there 
all year long, but nobody saw them. Mm. And now it's cold. They have to break cover to warm up. So people see them, people report them. So we do get more calls in the winter, but it's, it's pretty steady in Florida. Gators are always moving around. So when, when somebody calls with a nuisance alligator, are you going out to get it or does somebody else go get it? So we work as a team. Uh, our head trapper is Paul Bernard from the Gator Boys TV show. Yeah. He's still with us. Um, but it's really up to him who goes out on what. But what we always say is if you're here, if you're on the team, you're on call 24-7, 365. Like if you're not actually in the alligator pit wrestling, they could call you, you get up, you go. And um, so it, it varies. Paul takes the majority of them. It's, you know, he's been building that team for you know, God knows how long, probably over 10 years now. So it's always up to him. He's the team leader. He decides what goes, but we're always on call 24-7. What would be a super easy layup alligator to to get? Like, what would be, like, the dream scenario? Like, oh, you look over there, and you're like, oh, this is going to be super easy. Well, I know uh, our favorite ones to film are definitely when they're in a swimming pool. <laughs> And because it's they, they're not going anywhere. I mean, the word it, it's the answer is when they can't go anywhere, when they're right. basically cornered or trapped, because we know it's it's in and out. We're going to not going to have to spend hours and hours trying to track it down, get a hand on it, take it from there. Like when there's no chance of it getting away, we're like, all right, this is going to be a good one. We can kind of play around. But the swimming pool ones definitely seem to get the most attention and they're just cool in general. We did have one. Uh, not this year, but I think two years ago we had a, a full, like a nine foot alligator in someone's swimming pool. <laughs> and, um, I know that it was, uh, Paul was disappointed cause he was going in and expecting it to be this huge explosions and everything. And it was pretty lame. He pretty much just walked in and just noosed it and just pulled it out and it like barely fought him. And he was like, really? All right, whatever. <laughs> he'd been, he'd been happy there. Um, and, and probably very relaxed in that swimming pool. Um, yeah. so on the other hand, what would be like a, a bad scenario? Like somebody could get, I mean, bit. Uh, I mean, that's, that's always a possibility. You know, it's just part of the job that's, there's always a possibility you getting bit. We always, I mean, especially at, at work, we say it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when and how you react to it. When you spend as much time handling gators as we do, you're more than likely going to get nailed at some point. But if you're smart and well-trained and you're able to control your reflexes, it's usually not that bad of a situation. But, <laughs> I mean, we've all – I've got hole punches in me for a couple of times. and So, it's, well, I'm, I'm interested in that because if if you're smart and you react the right way, what is that? What do you, What's the right way to react if an alligator is to bite you? So obviously it depends on the scenario. You got to play it by play it by ear. Every time is different, but for the most part, number one thing that we practice is don't react when they get you. Just don't react because their instinct is like, if you try to pull your hand away, mm -hmm. then it's, if their brain has flipped to this is food in my mouth and you try to pull it away, they're like, someone's taking away my food. And then you're really screwed because that's, that's uh they don't want to let go of that easy, but Luckily, so the, the worst bite that I had was actually through my thumb. There's there's barely any, but any scar. It's just a little, little tiny scar here. But yeah. it was nine-foot alligator, boom, straight through. And so I have scars on the top and the bottom. And I just didn't move. Just stood perfectly still. And luckily, he just, like, 
was basically uncomfortable with the feeling in his jaws. And as he was trying to like figure out what was going on, he just opened his jaws and I just took my hand out, closed the jaws, kept going like nothing happened. Wow. Finished the show. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's while you're in front of a, a giant crowd, like people are yeah. watching you do this and that happens and you just, you, yeah. uh, the show must go on. Yeah. I mean, I've, I called out once I finished the show, but I had about 10 minutes of script left and I just powered right through it. Like nothing happened. Just finished the whole show and everything. And, uh, then whenever, you know, people were like, you okay. I was like, it just casual, like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and then right after I was like, I might need some antibiotics. <laughs> right. I mean, I bet so. I bet they're, I mean, there's probably, they're in the water all the time. So their mouth yeah. has probably got a lot of bacteria. Do you get infected? Like is MRSA or something like that a, a possibility when you're getting bit by an alligator? I mean, it's the main problem is that they have very, I mean, they are like a wild alligator would, would probably be worse than a captive because they will eat nasty stuff. They're, their guts can digest like the most ridiculous. They'll eat rotting. Like if they get a meal that's too big, they wait for it to rot a lot of times mm. and then tear it apart because it's softer tissue. <laughs> so they are, yeah, their their mouths definitely can be a breeding ground for bacteria for sure. Um, but for the most part, it's it's less about the bacteria and more about when you do get a bite from them. It's deep punctures. Yeah. And when that bacteria goes in deep, that's the problem. So is it true, like, um, I always heard that, like, the alligator would bite something. You say that if it's too big that they'll wait for it to rot. I always heard that they would, like, take it underwater and, like, stuff it under a ledge or under a... a, yeah. a is that true? Is that, like, what they really do? Yeah, they definitely do that. Um, it's less so a thing with the American alligator as it is with other species of crocodilians. Like, the Nile crocs and stuff like that are notorious for that. But the American alligators, they just, it, it's really about the predator-prey relationship. In Florida, American alligators don't really have anything bigger than, like, a raccoon that they would naturally attack. So they're not really geared towards big animals. They'll eat turtles, ducks, fish, raccoons, like, anything in, like, you know, this medium-sized bracket. But animals that are bigger than that, they don't really have them in Florida. So they're not really geared towards it. But they are opportunistic apex predators. So when they see an easy meal, they'll go for it every time because why would they pass up an right. easy meal? But they don't really hunt large animals, so they don't exhibit the same kind of behavior with, like, tearing stuff apart, waiting for the big animals to decompose. Like, they will do that if it's an opportunistic scenario. But when you get into your Nile crocodiles, your Australian saltwater crocs, they hunt big animals regularly. Yeah. So that's more of a behavioral pattern with them since they're used to dealing with big animals. And so in Florida, the crocodiles that we have, that's they're, they're going to be below a certain latitude, right? Or, or certain yeah, yeah, territory? Like, where, where, where's the crocodile? exist i mean i know we see them in the florida keys we see them in the everglades yeah, yeah but where where is their territory where do you think the northern cutoff is so we there's always outliers you know it's always a relative home range for them uh there was actually one this year that was it was either in boca or in boyton but it's pretty far up the That's coast pretty far up yeah, but those are outliers. Like, the vast majority of them stay right on the southern, southern tip of Florida. So they're much more prominent in the Keys. Actually, there's a pretty big population of them by the Turkey Point power plant uh -huh. over there. And they study that population really closely. 
but uh, they're mostly just on the southern tip. But every once in a while, we'll get one that comes up. The cl I've seen one just a couple miles south of US 41 inside Everglades National Park. So they do come up into there's an area over there called Shark Valley. And it's pretty well known that they will regularly have one or two residents that make it up that far into that section. But yeah, it, it's rare for them to go that far north. They're really just on the southern tip. Now, when you have a crocodile and an alligator, both could possibly end up in front of your dock in the Florida Keys or someplace <laughs> like that, right? Like it, it could yeah, be. Yeah. But they're they're different as far as the the protection that the government has on like a, a crocodile is a totally different uh, protected species than an alligator. So if you walked out to your dock, you've got what you're considering a problem alligator that just mm -hmm. kind of hanging around your dock. You've got dogs, you've got kids, you've got whatever. You could call someone to come and get that alligator, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Would, is it the same way with a crocodile or is or, or would the rules be different or do they is that like a protected species and and they nobody's coming to get that it's both so american crocodiles uh so the, in florida we have estimates of about 1.8 million alligators only about 2000 crocodiles so those are the population stats are very very different so obviously the crocodiles fall under stricter federal protections but both are actually federally protected they're both under federal regulations like if you've ever noticed people that actually do hunt alligators it's very hard to get tags there's not a lot of them and they're pretty you know, spread out in Florida, mm -hmm. I believe it's a lottery system where you could put it in the maximum you can pull is two tags a year. So it's very regulated. Crocodiles are obviously more regulated than that. But when it comes to the nuisance scenarios with American alligators, the we're legally only allowed to relocate them if they're under four feet. If they're over that, by law, they have to be either killed or kept in captivity. And those rules were put in place mostly due to the alligator's homing ability. So once they start getting over that four-foot range, they start getting a little more dominant, a little more territorial, they'll start to develop a home range. And if you take them out of that, they go right back to where you caught them, even if it's 20, 30 miles away. One way or another, they'll make it back. Right. So, so is that why you end up with, with the ones in, in the park where, where you work? Yeah, yeah, because legally, if we go to remove them and they're over, if they're little baby ones, we're allowed to relocate them. But if they're bigger, they legally have to be either killed or kept in captivity based on Florida's state laws. So we can't do anything. And with, so we don't want to kill them. When you have one for a year and a half and mm -hmm. you say that they move in and out, then where do they go after that? Like, So we have connections all over the state. Uh, we pretty much work with any park that we trust is going to take good care of the animals. We're like, here, take as many as you want. Like, we got a steady supply of them going in. Right. And we we work very hard to make sure that all of our animals are kept in you know, noteworthy facilities. A lot of the ones we work with, at least our main one, is a 501c3 nonprofit. And one of the beautiful symbiotic relationships we have there is we give them the alligators. They put it in you know, into their nonprofit and they actually use donations from grocery stores and whatnot. So basically when they have meat that's on the shelves that expires, even if there's nothing wrong with it, they can't sell it because it passed the expiration date. So instead of throwing it out and just having a loss, they will donate it to 501c3 nonprofits 
write that off as a charitable donation. Ah. And that goes straight into feeding the alligators. So it's a nice little cycle that works there. Everybody benefits. Yeah, I see that. That's pretty cool. And and yeah. so a nuisance crocodile, what would happen to them? So they have a three-strike policy with nuisance crocodiles. As far as I know, there might be changes in the regulation. I don't really keep up too much with it. But last I heard, it's a three-strike policy where if a crocodile causes problems for people, they will relocate it three times. And if the third time it's still causing problems for people, then they'll go ahead and put it in captivity. But again, it's a you know federally protected species. They're on the endangered species list, even though, well, important to note about that is that there's, there's not, it's not like anything happened to the crocodiles, really. It's always been a very, very small population. Gators range all the way up the coast to North Carolina, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible. They are the most cold tolerant crocodilians in the world. Uh, even in North Carolina, they'll freeze with just the tip of their nose through frozen lakes. Really? Just so they can keep breathing. Yeah. yeah. And they it's can. It's pretty incredible. They just kind of shut down or, or hibernate, yeah. kind of? Or what happens it, to their, to their biology? Like, yeah, what, it's what are they doing? It's technically a brumation state, okay. but they'll slow their heartbeat down to one beat per minute in those what? states. Yeah. So and if you came across wait. one of those, is there any danger like that? Or is it just almost comatose? Yeah, basically right. comatose at that point. But, I mean, they'll literally freeze. You can find videos and, and links to it of people that literally with just their tip of their nose through the ice and just frozen all around them just so they can keep breathing even though their bodies are fully submerged. And wow. they'll just go through the winter. As soon as it melts, they'll start to come out. And there's a really interesting uh, facility out in Colorado, the Colorado Gator Farm. And obviously, Colorado pretty cold yeah and it's it's not part of the native range of the alligator but they do have captive alligators in colorado at this facility and they're known for that they basically keep them in hot springs and so it's like spring-fed warm water but the gators will actually bask on the snow because it's snowing all around and they'll just lay up on the snow and just bask there in the sun (laughs) to warm up in the winter why would someone want to bring alligators to colorado uh i don't know i mean it just seems so much easier to move to florida right like (laughs) if that if you just love alligators so much that you that you want to bring them to colorado i don't know i guess it is a you you know i mean that's a tourist thing right like yeah go see it i've met the guys from there they're nice guys but yeah they definitely seem like the type of people that would pull one of those maneuvers they're they're a little wacky but we all are you all are (laughs) (laughs) that's funny um so have you ever had one in the park that that i mean i see your your videos i mean you got an awesome uh instagram it's at snakeaholic it's on your shirt right now and um uh it i mean you you'll there's one video where you're just like Laying there, and it looks like you're laying on a beach, and then you just kind of pan the camera around, and you're like, your head is like on an alligator's head, and <laughs> then, I mean, you've done that like a whole bunch of times, and you're obviously very yeah. comfortable around the alligators, and they're very comfortable around you, but have you ever had one in the park where you're just like, Dude, not that one, like that? Yep. That's just a bad character right there. Like, don't mess with that one. Or, I mean, how do you know? Like, is it, do they exhibit a certain personality that you're, that's really easy for, for someone with as much experience as you to have to, to tell like which one you can lay your head on and which one 
you should definitely not not do that. You'll lose your head. Yeah, they all have different personalities, and that's it, it is one of the most fascinating things about them is people look at them so robotically, like just that this is just a machine. It doesn't have emotions. It doesn't think. It just goes kill, eat, kill, eat, and that's all it thinks about. But they're way more complex than that. I've actually seen our alligators learn. We had one. His name was Ajax. He learned his name in one day. <laughs> one day. Called called his name Ajax. Gave him a piece of chicken. Next day, called his name Ajax. Turned around right away. Like, ooh, more food? Like, they learn fast. Wow. So the, the dynamic of it is when they first come in, they're obviously going to be afraid of us. They don't know what's going on. They feel like they've been abducted by aliens, as they basically have. And so the, the fear is all here. Their personality is still here, but the fear is overriding it. So as we gradually teach them that we're not a threat, we're not a danger, we're not going to hurt them, that fear starts to come down. And as the fear comes down, the personality comes out. And you don't really know what you got until you can bring that fear down and bring the personality out. How long does that and take? And then from totally depends on the individual. Okay. I've seen them go from fresh from the wild to I could do a show with that gator in two weeks. We had, like that was Ajax, two weeks, fresh from the wild, he's ready to do shows. And then Darth Gator took a year and a half before anyone would even jump on him because he was just wired. And now he's actually currently my favorite gator to do shows with. He just does a really good show. He's like he's a combination of like tolerant, but also like still got some spunk in him. So he puts on a really good show, but he took over a year and a half before he finally started to mellow out. So it totally depends on the individual and their individual personality. And when you get one like that that you really particularly like and it does does a good show and 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 do are they territorial like when they get real comfortable in your place do they accept other ones coming in or is that sometimes a problem? Depends on the individual. Uh again it's based on their personality. Sometimes they are just wiry and they just don't like other alligators right we have we've had them in the past where they're they're extremely tolerant towards people they'll let us handle them and like they won't even react sometimes like just try to move them and they're like nah, i'm sleeping leave me alone but then there's other ones and then an, an alligator will walk over to them and then they get all territorial and try to mm. attack it yeah so it goes back and forth some of them are super tolerant of other alligators but not tolerant of people and some of them are super tolerant of people but don't like other alligators and there's a weird dynamic between that yeah. they also play favorites they have relationships between each other some of them get along some of them don't and you just kind of got to learn it and work with it i mean it sounds it sounds almost like if if we weren't talking about alligators we could be talking about dogs and people would be like well yeah that's what that's that's what happens like my dog you know sometimes he likes dogs and sometimes there's a dog that just rubs him the wrong way and he he goes after him it's like i've never seen him do that before like why why would you do that? But for whatever reason, that dog, and it, it makes a lot of sense to people because they've seen that behavior a lot with, when you're around dogs. But an alligator, I mean, very few people have the kind of experience that you have with alligators to where you can mm -hmm. see expressions or body language or, or like, what is it that you're seeing? Like on a dog, they're very expressive. They have, they, you can see facial expressions. An alligator is not necessarily that I can tell is changing its facial expression, but I would imagine that it's putting off some sort of body language that you're reading. You're like, I mean, and a fish will do that too. Like when we, when we land a fish, you're like, you can tell like this thing's about to go nuts mm -hmm. or okay. He, he went nuts for a second and now he's done. 
right? Like everything's cool. And there's a certain way to handle each fish and you don't get bit. And then there's other ways that like, that's definitely the wrong way to do it. And you will get bit. But I mean, what are you seeing with an alligator? Is it body language or, or posture or what? It's, it's both. There's a, there's a lot of things for the most part when we're handling them, it's a lot of actual tactile. Like they're, they have what we usually describe as like a delayed response. So before they actually do something, they'll think about it. And a lot of times when I'm, well, every time when I'm on their back, before they do anything, I usually know what's happening because they'll go from kind of relaxed to just, and they just stiffen up mm -hmm. and take a deep, and you feel the, the muscle tension building and you yeah. know that they're building up to do a big explosive movement. Yeah. That's exactly so that, what I was talking about with one. the fish. Like yeah. you've got a big barracuda or a, or a mackerel or something in your hand with a lot of, or shark, and uh, mm -hmm. you can feel that same thing. Like you can feel it. It's yeah. like he's about to he's about to go. Like really hold on or let go, one or the other. But you know, <laughs> you can see it. I mean, you can really feel it. Yeah. You can feel the energy. And I would imagine that's the same way. When you start talking about that kind of stuff, posture and body language, um, is that something that just a regular person when they're on the golf course or or they're going to their uh, their pond and there's an alligator in there, like can you notice um body language or posture or attitude could a regular person notice that and be like it's a dangerous gator or do you just stay away from all gators i mean the 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 best safety advice would be stay away from all gators uh not because they're going to attack you or anything but just they're a big apex predator they're dominant they're powerful and although they're not an aggressive species towards large animals such as people they are very opportunistic and they learn very quickly so mm. when they see an easy meal they'll go for it every time and they can learn very fast like i said we have one learn his name in one day so if you take learning his name in one day you can imagine what that means for if somebody is you know feeding a wild alligator right that's how fast they can learn like oh people food people food people food and they can learn it really fast, which is why in the state of Florida, it is fully illegal. It's a felony to feed a wild alligator because it creates such a dangerous scenario. You feed them one time, they start associating people with food right away. They see people, they just swim over trying to get food, get a free handout or whatever. And it creates a very dangerous situation very, very quickly. Yeah, I see that. I see that. Okay, well, we got started on our, um, on our conversation a little early. And since the last time we've been we had you on the podcast. I have this new uh, segment of the podcast called the hot seat where I ask you a bunch mm -hmm. of different questions. So we're going to do that now. And then we're going to talk about snakes because that's what you really like to talk about. Okay. All right. So we're going to do these hot seat questions. There's just a series of quick questions, either, or you just kind of answer them as quickly as, as you can. Don't put a lot of thought into it. All right. You ready? Yep. One of your favorite bands. Maroon 5 is the first one that comes to mind. I've uh, gotten over that a little bit. Not as important to me as they used to be, but growing up, they were one of my favorites. Cool. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. One I thing... Even, I have a Twitter, but I don't use it. This one is interesting to me. One thing you're afraid of? <sighs> Oof. That's a tough one. I work so hard to not be afraid of anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anything heights, 
small spaces, the dark. Uh, I'd say driving in Florida, the other drivers. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That one, uh, that one is perfectly justified. <laughs> no questions, no questions needed. Um, okay, which reptile would you not have as a pet? A lot of monitor lizards are very sketchy if you don't know what you're doing. They're actually extremely intelligent. And if you're a skilled monitor handler, you can train them to do incredible things. Target train them, commands, every, get them to eat out of your hands. But I personally don't have a lot of experience with big monitors. And they have crazy teeth and big tails. And they'll take a chunk out of you if you're not careful yeah i mean that that sounds like a nightmare to me the monitor lizard i've seen those videos where they're just chasing down beaches and stuff i don't know we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute <laughs> office friends yeah. or parks and rec parks and rec one piece of technology you rely heavily on other than your phone gopro favorite reptile snakes Burmese pythons by far. Coffee, tea, or energy drink? Tea. Tea. Interesting. What kind of tea? You know, I'm a big lemon and, uh, you know, lemon and honey kind of deal, but I uh, I don't do any caffeine. Oh, really? Never. Okay. So yeah. herbal tea. Uh, mountains or beaches for vacation? Mountains, 100%. Cake or pie? Pie, although either way, I don't really eat desserts at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, winter Olympics or Summer Olympics? Summer. Favorite pro yeah. wrestler of all time? So I don't really have one, but I definitely have seen way more John Cena memes that, in, that I enjoy. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Uh, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Probably infrared vision that might mm. help me out. So you could see snakes. In my line of work. That's all yeah. you think about, man. You just want to find. <laughs> you want to find some more snakes. I know that's what I would think. I want. I want to be able to see into the ocean to where I can see every fish that's there. That's what. That would be awesome. For Either me. that or flying would probably help me too. Yeah. Just get a bird's eye view. Uh huh. Yeah. Flying would be good. Sunrise or sunset. Sunset. Country classic rock or rap rap okay inshore or offshore inshore early bird or night owl night owl venomous or non-venomous snakes tough one tough <laughs> one uh probably venomous you prefer venomous snakes yeah okay. it uh Keeps, keeps you on it. That's a long conversation we can have. Yeah, well, we're getting ready to have that here in a minute. Best catch yeah. in your career? There's a lot of good ones. Uh, most notable is definitely the previous state record, 18 foot nine Burmese python. Nice. A movie that makes you laugh? Uh, I, I just watched Anchorman again. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that one does, that good. one will make everybody laugh. The last book you remember reading or your favorite book? Interesting. 
So I don't read well. It's actually uh, or listen to. Like, yeah, I uh, my, my eyes are very all over the place, which is probably why I'm so good at spotting snakes. But um, I could plug my buddy Tom Crutchfield. He just uh, had a book come out a couple of years ago on giant snakes of the world, and there was super interesting information in there. But uh, I'm not as well read as I wish I was. <laughs> okay, well that we'll go with that one. What's that book called? The biggest, the snakes of the world. Uh, you know, I have a copy of it. I can go grab it quick. Here we go. This is it. It's oh, nice. Giant snakes. <laughs> giant snakes. Got it. Uh, East coast or west coast? Never been to the west coast. East coast all the way, baby. Okay. East coast or west coast of Florida? <laughs> Really, the middle. I'm in the Everglades all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a place you would like to visit? Australia, because they have bad snakes there. You, you're darn right. <laughs> you're rooting to it. Somehow I knew. Somehow I knew that was going to be uh, the reason. Uh, Android <laughs> or iPhone? Android. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. One piece of advice that has served you well. Follow your dreams. I like it. I like it. Awesome. So that's the hot seat. Gives us a little opportunity to delve into your uh, to your mind. So now I want to talk about the uh, the monitor lizard. What in yeah. the world is going on with those things? Um, and why would you even consider having one as a pet? Um, <laughs> they seem they're, like they're, the nastiest creature ever. They can be, but they're also the most intelligent lizards. Like uh, monitors and iguanas are definitely like the most intelligent lizards. And so my buddy Tom, Tom Crutchfield, you know, same author of this yeah. book, but um, he does some incredible work with the monitors that he has i mean he's gotten them where like people have he actually so he's got these these uh i'm forgetting the name of them right now but they're these mass croc monitors that's what they are it's okay. got these huge huge monitors they're one of the biggest species in the world and like how big would that had... be how long would that that be don't quote me on it, but I think they can crack eight feet. What? So like They're almost huge. the size of an alligator. Like these things are. Yeah, they get they get big. Like I mean, it's he's got some of them that are as wide as your torso. Wow. And um, they. So what's interesting about them is people typically think that they're crazy, but he has a couple of them that will just walk right up to you. And it's all the way, all about how you behave with them and everything. But he's a master of just reptile. His famous quote is, it's only when the keeper and the kept lose their fear of each other that we can find out the true personality of these hmm. animals. Wow. So when he goes in to interact with these giant monitors, he does his best to not make them afraid and his best to not be afraid himself and let the two animals interact back and forth. And he's got these monitors that are friendly. I mean, they'll come right up to you and they're curious. They want to know who you are and what you're doing and just tongue flicking and everything. And it's, uh, 
but they're, I mean, just, you would not want to take a bite off of one of them, but just the, the relationship he's developed with them never ceases to amaze me. It's truly incredible what he's done with them. But the rhino iguanas that he has are definitely the most social of these big lizards that he has. They'll come right up to you and they want to be touched. They want to be interacted with. And hmm. all of these big animals that they can be so dangerous and people have this perception of them as being so aggressive and territorial and defensive and just beat you up. If there's a skilled handler and they know how to interact with this animal over time and teach it to not be afraid, all that comes down, those walls come down, and they can be incredibly social, incredibly just good to interact with. And it, it's mind-blowing what I've seen Tom do with these wow. lizards. Like, and where it, does, it where really... does he have his headquarters or, or where is he Homestead. operating? Homestead. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. And what does yeah, he have, like a, a, a some sort of a, a thing that people can go to and, and look at this? Or is it more of a private kind of... It's his private collection. Um, okay. He does a lot of breeding and um, uh, on select species. And he was... He used to breed iguanas that were worth like $10,000 a piece. Really? Because the, the color phases that he was able to develop were just out of this world i mean just neon red neon orange neon yellow just the most jaw-dropping lizards you've ever seen in person and uh i i'm not really sure how everything worked out but after you know florida fish and wildlife banned the green iguana i know that he had it created a lot of complications for him and his breeding program but mm -hmm. i'm sure he's worked out all the details he's a very by the book person well, the iguanas, but, um, the iguanas are not having any problem in South Florida. They seem to uh, just be everywhere. I mean, everywhere. Um, yeah. What do you what uh, what's this what's the status as far as you know of 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 the iguana? And also, then I want to kind of segue into um, the python and the snake and what's going on in the Everglades. So the iguanas in general, I mean, the overall thing is, yes, they're a non-native species, but they're also herbivores. So the green iguana, in terms of the invasive species of Florida, I think they're a little overhyped. I think that they've been demonized so much, but a lot of people don't realize that the main thing that iguanas do is annoy people. <laughs> like they poop on the side of their pools, they eat their hibiscus, they destroy their flower beds. And so that's really like, that's where it's a weird line because they don't actually affect the native animals that much since they are herbivores, but they definitely annoy people and burrow into the levee system. So they start causing erosion. Yeah, that's so what I've always problems. heard people get mostly the most upset about them burrowing behind the seawall. And yeah. that can be, I mean, that can be a big problem, I would imagine, because even if the seawall is, is damaged or cracks or whatever, sometimes now there's a permit situation that might not be that easy to fix that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I know that, that when you start talking about seawalls and pilings and things like that, that's like, it's a whole different, it's a whole different kind of permit process. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so what about the Everglades? You sent me a picture not too long ago of a of, of a, a giant one caught there. What was that? A uh, giant python? Yeah. 
Yeah, you sent me you sent me one, right? Like ironically, I have to say, uh, can you be more specific? I've caught <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> no, no, you you caught one, but I thought you said I thought you sent me one. I'll look back through here, but I thought you sent oh, me one. Oh, it was yeah, like this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. check out this one. It's like the biggest one ever or something. Yeah, so it's a uh, new so it's it, it wasn't actually a record breaker, but it was very, very close. So recently, just about a month ago, um, we had actually it was less than a month ago. We had a 198 pound Burmese python what? removed from the Everglades. And so it was actually the second heaviest that's ever been caught. It was surpassed only by one other snake that was the the record for weight is actually 215 pounds. Uh, and that was removed by the Conservancy of Southwest Florida. And uh, my a close friend of mine, Kyle Findlay, was actually on the team at the time helping. The, it was found via radio telemetry. And they were tracking out to a male Burmese python. And he led them to this monster snake that was out there. Wow. But this is the second heaviest. So the 198-pounder is the second heaviest that's ever been found. And I actually was doing... Uh, a, I do taxidermy on the side and I specialize in Burmese pythons and reptiles in general. So like that's a full Burmese python skeleton I did in the back and I've got all sorts of stuff around my house. But that 198 pounder was dropped off at my house for taxidermy. So I had this snake and it was it was a beast, dude. <laughs> I mean and and how will you jacked. um how will you mount that? Like like what what do they want? They want the like the skin on it, or or like the the skeleton mount, like you do, or like they what? just want the skin and the skull in this case. Um, but I, you know, obviously the to do the full skeleton is the most expensive option for sure. Uh, it just takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. But most people typically just want the skin and the skull. Yeah, and I do have a pretty steady supply of people bringing in Burmese pythons for taxidermy. When reasons. you do the when you do the skeleton mounts like that, do you use beetles or like how yeah. do you do that? Yeah, so I have a colony of dermestid beetles, and um, they're they're pretty voracious. They eat pretty. Their appetite is incredible sometimes, so I always have to try to just keep them fully fed all the time, always have something in the tank for them to feed off of. But the Dermesid beetles, they're, they're a species of carrion beetle, and they predominantly, I mean, they, they mostly eat the meat that's on the skeletons, mm -hmm. but they will eat other parts of the animal. And really the only way that it applies to me is I know that they will eat cartilage mm. if they don't have, they'll eat the meat first, then they'll eat the cartilage. So my goal with the beetle colony is to put something in there and then pull it out where they've had just enough time to eat all the meat off of it, but pull it out before they start eating all the cartilage. Cause then everything will start to just fall apart. Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a very specific time frame in there. When I have a big skeleton that's in there, I'll set a timer and literally check it every three hours when it's getting close to being done. So I pull it out before they start chewing into the cartilage and then it becomes a big jigsaw puzzle for I'm, me. I'm sure a snake jigsaw puzzle. That would be um, very difficult to do. Have you ever done like a fish? Uh, I mean, do those, those same beetles, would they eat? Um, like if you wanted to do a fish uh, skull, like some people would yeah, do like so a, a swordfish skull or or barracuda skull or something like that, or, or the whole fish. I've seen the whole fish be mm -hmm. done before. Is that the same type of beetle that would would eat, would eat do that? Yeah, they're really not picky. Um, I've done 
I, I don't do many fish skulls, but I did do a big barracuda for some recent someone recently. Uh, and I've done an arapaima in the past. Mm. Um, I've also done snakeheads. And um, I try to do a largemouth bass that I found that <laughs> was a, a floater. Yeah. And I was like, that looks pretty nasty, but it's a decent-sized fish. I'm curious what the beetles would do with it. Uh, just the problem with them is that the like mammals and reptiles, their skulls are held together more. But fish, they have so many like loosely connected bones, like a lot. They they, they don't have almost no cartilage. Right. Like it's just stuck together. So as soon as they, you know, the meat comes off, they just start to just like fall apart. So it's a lot more gluing, and they are, like the barracuda head I just did. Oh my god, there was so much oil and just grease trapped in the bones. I degreased it for months trying to get all the oil out really? and eventually i just kind of gave up with it like all right it's white enough it's fine and i talked to other people that do the same kind of mounts and they said sometimes they soak it for six months to a year before it's like white wow. so i prefer to do reptiles i will pick up uh, a fish project here and there but it's not my specialty yeah i'm much better at working with reptiles i know the anatomy and bones so a lot this, better. So this 198 pounder and you got to see this thing and mm -hmm. did it have like anything in it that would make it, you know, 40 pounds heavier than normal or like a deer or something like that or is this just that was just that snake was that big. So there we don't there have been records that are actually heavier than that um but it's it's really, from what I know, some of the radio telemetry teams have tracked out to their animals, and they have basically a full-size deer in them. And so at that point, you're looking at a body weight. I've heard that it's probably roughly like 250 pounds when they've combined animals like that, but they don't really count that because yeah. it's not its not really the true weight of the animal. Um so if you wanted to do that, technically there's been one that was like 250 pounds, but it was just a radio telemetry team keeping up with their animal, and it had a huge prey item in it, and they field weighed it at like 250 pounds. So yeah. it's, yeah, but these snakes, both of them, the 215 and the 198-pounder, um, upon necropsy, we found deer hooves in their stomachs, but the entire animal had already been completely digested. It's nothing but hoof cores that are left. And I actually did save them for the client. They wanted them. But interestingly, they the pythons can digest basically the entire animal except the hooves and the fur. So, like, they'll poop out the fur and the hooves. And a lot of times the hooves will actually stay in their GI tract. So inside the actual stomach of the snake while I was necropsying it, I was like, oh, there's something in here. Cut it open. Sure enough, deer hooves was in there wow what about antlers so i don't know that we've really officially documented it but i'm fairly certain that they would digest those completely what i do know not really in florida but i have seen videos of african rock pythons um eating like i guess it's gazelle over there or, or pronghorns whatever it is but they um yeah they'll, and they'll go open their mouths and go over the antlers and just swallow that whole animal. And you'd think that those antlers would just stab right back through them. 
but apparently they just choke them down. Wow. And digest crazy. the whole thing. So let's say that a that a a big snake like that one, the hundred ninety eight pounder, that you know, I, I I guess does it know it should be eating you know antlerless deer, or I guess it could conceivably if it's dark or whatever, you it, it gets a a big male deer and uh, bites it, chokes it, kills it, and then tries to eat it head first and can't, then what would they do? I don't know. I mean, is, is that a realistic situation or like, it seems like it would be. It probably is. Um, I mean, I guess the, the real question would be to go back to their native range in Southeast Asia and see what the native, you know, large game mammals that are there look like. And if they have that scenario. So I would assume if they have that scenario in their native range, they're prepared to deal with it. Since they're an invasive species in Florida, they're not exactly genetically designed for the animals here, even if they are good at consuming them. I could definitely see that being a problem if they get one where the antlers are way out. Mm -hmm. It could definitely be an issue. Uh, but also Florida deer in general, typically, especially South Florida deer, run a lot smaller. Yeah. Than... But still, you got like a, a rack on there, yeah. which would seem like very difficult to to eat when 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 they get a deer do they typically eat it head first or do, always always yeah. head first yeah and they'll yep. eat almost everything head first or the whole they thing. do eat everything head first they eat everything head first it's instinctual for them huh. once they get a hold of it constrict it it's dead they navigate back to the head and just start from there and just go all the way over so i guess i mean theoretically if the antler rack is no bigger than the widest part of the deer's torso geometrically it should still work you know yeah because if they're going to go over like the widest part of the deer anyway as long as it's the same width they should be able to get it down you've never seen one with with antlers though any kind of so a, far it, i haven't heard anything of it um yeah. but it I'm sure it's happened somewhere in the wild of Florida, and uh, no one's been around to witness it. Well, certainly just a spike, you know, like a, a you know, a, a small, young yeah, that wouldn't even buck. Yeah. They just go right, right, you know, eat that. But once those, once the antlers start to, to like, fork, it yeah. seems like that would be really hard for a snake to eat that. But a 200-pound snake, how big is the, is the head on that snake? Probably like that. Like the size of a good-sized dog. Like you're bigger than a dog. Yeah, I mean, we when they get to be that size, we just start calling them two-handers because where it's you need two hands to go all the way around the neck. Wow. That's when you're like, eh, that's a pretty big snake. And so when you're going to go, when you find one like that, a really big one, maybe, maybe it's the record, maybe it's close to the record. You've caught plenty of tons of big ones. Um, how do you... You you got a two hander, right? Like yeah. how how are you going to approach that to to actually catch it? Number one goal is get to the head, because once once you get control of the head, you're starting to be able to win the battle. Mm -hmm. If you don't get to the head, you don't have that snake captured. When you get a big one by the tail, which is a you don't want to be in that scenario. 
once they tuck in behind branches and vegetation, if they're over 12 feet and you have them by the tail, you are not going to be able to pull them out. You're going to have to anchor in and have somebody else go up the body or you yourself figure out a way to get up the body until you can get to the head. Because once they get around a tree or something, they're way too strong. They'll mm -hmm. just drag you away. So if it's a really, really big one, we're trying to get to the head because once we get the head, the battle's not over, but we're starting to get into the bracket where it's like, okay, we got this under control. We can deal with the coils and everything after and take it from here. So if I can get to the head, boom, dive on it right away, grab it, tuck in hard, and be ready for the battle that's going to come after that. If you can't get to the head, reach as close to the head as we can. Grab on a lot of times to the belly scales underneath because there's more give to them. Lock into that as hard as you can and anchor and hope somebody else can leapfrog over me. And um, there's actually – there's – We've been in scenarios before where the vegetation is so dense that, you, I mean, the snake is dragging you away. And all I have is just whatever I can grab onto. And my buddy Anthony and I are a you know, dynamic duo. We always, always go out together, especially when we're in breeding season and we know it's going to be all hands on deck. We will, we have a pat, we don't even talk about it. We already have it ironed out, but we leapfrog. So it's like, if I get a tail grab, he'll immediately jump over my back, reach as far up as he can, grab onto the belly scales of the snake, hold it in place. Whenever he's like, all right, I got it. You go. I let go of my section, jump over him, reach up, grab in, and we'll repeat that process until we get to the head. And I mean, it's, it's. Even then, it's a battle sometimes. And that thing's not going to turn around and bite you? At that point, their main objective is to get away. Uh -huh. If they can get their head into dense vegetation or into the water, their main reflex is going to be to just keep trying to drag you away and get away from you. Once you have them out in the open and they feel like they can't get away, then they'll typically turn and come after you. But it's only when you reach that point where they feel like they can't get away. If they feel like they can get away, they'll just drag you away. Just keep Dang. going. And they're so powerful that, I mean, there's, I know quite a few people who have stories of like, they're just hanging on and that snake just dragged them away. Like it was nothing. Wow. I've seen, we had one, one year that was, uh, it was like 15, two or something like 15 foot, two inches. And my buddy at the time was like 250 pounds, maybe more. And he got it by the tail and I was going in after the head and he was pulling back as hard as he could, and it dragged him, like, 20 feet. Like, literally, his feet had, there were drag marks in the <laughs> dirt. For a 250-pound so dude. Yeah, he's anchored in as hard as he can, and it was just dragging him. Just slowly and steadily, his feet were just scraping the dirt as it dragged him away. Wow. Until I got to the head and then it's, they're built for, for, for the only, they actually inchworm is their main way of locomotion. And uh, I have a couple of videos on my page about it where you can see the way that they really, they travel in a straight line and they inchworm. Hmm. They'll only do the S shape when they're spooked and they want to take off fast. But so when you have them anchored, you got them by the tail and they're dragging you. They're just inchworming their way forward, slowly but surely, just gaining traction over and over again. But they can't really back up. So they're always moving forward. So once I get to the head, it doesn't matter where the rest of the body is. Once I get the head, I know the body is going to inchworm and slinky its way 
back up to me. So I get the head, then just drag it out of the vegetation and we'll deal with it after. <laughs> Unless they're in rocks, then they just puff up and wedge themselves in and it becomes a lot harder. <laughs> wow. I would imagine. So what, um, like you were talking about you and your buddy, is, is that the ultimate to have two people or, or what's the, what would you consider like, uh, the number of people that it takes to, to do this effectively? It depends on the situation. So what we really need hands on deck for is peak of breeding season, because towards in the beginning of breeding season, we typically only get single snakes or pairs, meaning two at a time, but a male and a female side by side sitting on top of each other. Once we get in a late breeding season, whatever snakes haven't been removed yet, find each other. And there's been a couple times where we've come up on five pythons all laying on top of each other or in the same general area. And that's when, like, if we had a third person, it's extremely beneficial because it's just a mayhem. And we've had the last time we've had five snake breeding aggregations where we got all five. Wow. And we've had five snake breeding aggregations where we only get four. One gets away. But um, we're pretty good. We don't lose much. But still, like when you have that many snakes going on, it's it gets to be crazy where you, there's a good chance you're going to lose something. So go for the big ones or go for the easy ones. And our technique now when we're in that season is we literally keep snake bags on our hips. And the second we get one under control, boom, throw it in the bag, tie it off, boom, move to the next one, move to the next one. But I had at one point, I had a snake in this hand and then two snakes by the tail. So I had to put this one in the crook of my knee and pin it with my knee. And then I had one hand on each tail tucked in and just bent over, just holding on as long as I could. Well, my buddy Anthony went and got the head from the first one, brought that back, then started going after the third one. And it's that stuff is chaos in that moment. Wow. So at that time of year, we will typically call in a third person, but most of the year we can handle it with just two so people. So what is that time of the year? Uh, so their breeding season starts, I mean, they actually start finding each other in September already. They'll start to kind of get a gauge on where they're going to move towards for the winter. But by November, they're starting to narrow down their search. They're starting to dial in where they're going to spend the winter. They'll typically start actually mating depending on the weather, anywhere from December, January, February. Um, most of daytime activity takes place in the month of January. However, those big aggregations are always in February. It's very rare to get them before that. And it just, part of it is just it takes time, time for all those snakes to find each other and aggregate together. So late season. And typically by March, our season for breeding is pretty much over. And then the what's, how, how does the behavior change once that is over? It's so March and April being the times of year where breeding has just finished. It's the slowest time of the year for us. They are exhausted from all the breeding activity that they've done. You know, these males, a lot of the females typically pick a spot and stick there. The males will move sometimes miles all season long and they'll go from, like being real fat and healthy at the beginning of fall, winter. And by the spring, they're all shriveled up and shrunk in. And actually, it's a uh, there's a scientific word for it. It's reproductive aphasia. 
And it basically means during the breeding season, while they're reproducing, they don't eat at all. And their bodies, because of the breeding activity, are just burning off their reserves and they get smaller and smaller and smaller. Hmm. So when they're done with breeding season, they're smoking a cigarette, laying back, <laughs> curled up in the bushes. They don't want anything to do with it. And then it's a lag period, typically until we start getting our spring raining season. That's when they start to pick up their activity again and move back towards looking for food. So in your opinion, or, or what, what's your favorite time of the year to, to be hunting? for the, for uh, the snakes. It's, it's February for sure. And it's, it's funny too, because it's, it gets so crazy that it, I don't even get excited when it's happening. I just get anxious and nervous, but the ride home after a successful day in those conditions is where like the adrenaline like wears off. And I realize like, Oh my God, that was crazy. <laughs> but in the moment, it's just like, Oh man, there's so much going on. Like, be focused, be ready. Boom, dive on them, and oh, nothing gets the blood pumping like walking up on just a pile of snakes. That sounds that sounds uh, not that much fun for me, but you obviously get very <laughs> excited about it. Um, and so, uh, what about the status of the python in in the Everglades now? Do you think that that you guys are making any progress on the numbers or? Um, what 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 do you think the the status of the population of the of this invasive species in the Everglades is? So it's hard to say. Uh, one of the main reasons it's hard to say is just because of the habitat itself. The Everglades is a giant swamp. It's a lot of it's underwater, a lot of it's flooded, and they love that. It's perfect for them. But we typically only interact with them on what we consider to be accessible areas. So mm -hmm. levees, highways, road systems, high dry ground that we've basically built. And it creates corridors, it creates diversity of habitat that they might like. But it's hard to say about the entire Everglades since so much of it is just open, open well, flooded Well, let's grass. just say just just in yeah. the areas that you, that you regularly go, the accessible areas, what yeah, you just yeah. described, do you notice yeah. a decline in the numbers? Do you notice... Uh, that it seems to be under control or that it's going wild? Like, what's your kind of gut reaction, you think? So we're just starting to have enough data to try to answer that question. One of the things we've noticed is in certain locations, the average size has decreased, um, particularly on the L28 levy. A lot of people say that the average size has gone down dramatically. Um but it's also hard to draw a strict conclusion because these animals' movements are affected by a lot of things, most notably is water levels. The higher the water, the easier it is for them to travel. So we typically catch more on high water years than dry years. So that changes the dynamic also. So a lot of people want to say that we are having an impact in certain regions, certain areas of our project area. And I'd also like to believe that. But it's also hard to say when you consider all the factors that are involved. What I will say for sure is that we're never going to get all of them. So the goal for me is not we're going to get every single one. It's, it's we're going to get as many as we can. And for me, since that's not a realistic goal to get rid of every single one because of their behavior and the remoteness of the places that they go, 
I don't focus on, let's get them all. I focus on every single one that I take out, which is an invasive apex predator, not supposed to be here. That invasive apex predator is killing our native wildlife. And everyone that we take out means that that snake is not going to be killing our native wildlife anymore. So my perspective is every single invasive Burmese python we removed from the Everglades saves the lives of that many native wildlife animals. And that's the goal. I think about the native animals that I saved their lives because they would have been killed by this python if I had left it in the Everglades. Wow. Interesting. And so in the course of a year, um, you or, or your typical kind of hunter, contract hunter, how many do you think that you're capturing and taking out of the Everglades? I average one to 300 per year. Uh, my record is 368 in a year. Uh, I'd say for the most people that most of the professionals, probably 20 to 30. And then the upper percentage bracket get anywhere from, you know, 50 to 150 every year, depending on the year. Wow. Uh, and but you're the getting 300 our, some years. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, I mean, I, that year was also, I was, I was being a psycho about it. Like I, I just didn't take any days off. So basically what happened is I, I found, I was determined to set a record that year and I was like, I'm going to do it. And I just <laughs> didn't stop just every single day, just nonstop. So I had one of the records I set that year was, um, I found a whole bunch of, so I found a baby and I was able to trace that baby back to where they were coming from. So I found more and more and more and more. So in one night I was able to remove 32 babies and I was like, okay, let's do it again. And I came back the next night, caught 15, came back the night after caught another five. I think it was all in all, I removed 52 from just that nest. Wow. And as soon as I did that, that was already a record for the program. And I was like, okay, I already broke a record. Now let me take this record so high that nobody ever touches this record again. So I hunted every single day of that month, which was July, every single day through. And I caught 113 pythons that month. Wow. And at that point, I was like, all right, let's just keep it going. Let's make this year now. Let's break the record for the year. And it's, yeah, 368 was what I ended the year with. Wow, that's which was crazy. Just, yeah. So also when you're, when in you're, that year, what? Yeah. Uh, also in that year, I caught every single size python that exists from hatchlings, which are about two feet, three foot, four foot, five foot, six foot, seven foot, eight foot, nine foot, 10 foot, 11 foot, 12 <laughs> foot, 13 foot, 14 foot, 15 foot, 16 foot, 17 foot. And we got the state record at 18, nine that year also. Wow. So it was blue that that year will never be touched <laughs> again for my own record. I, I don't, I'll never have a year like that again. I don't expect to. It was such an incredible year. That's crazy. And obviously that's got some financial gain to that, right? Like you, I mean, you get paid yeah. on each one that you get or how do you, how does that work? Yeah. So the, it, it's broken down in two ways. We do get paid hourly to go out there. Um, and depending on the zones that we're in, sometimes it's 13 an hour, sometimes it's 18 an hour. And then we get paid incentives for the snakes that we remove proportionate to the length of the animal. So it's bracketed. The first zero to four feet is 
$50, and then it's $25 a foot for every foot over four feet. So a 10-foot snake works out to 200 bucks. But nobody does it solely for the money. Like, it, there's not enough money in it. If you don't love it or have a passion for it, you're not going to make a profit on it. Mm-hmm. And you have to factor in all the other expenses. So the main one is gas. People don't realize how much fuel you're burning when you're out there every single night. You burn a fuel, full tank of gas every night in my car. Every single night. So it's like that adds up really, really quick. I also pretty much always now hunt with another professional hunter. So when we do catch a snake, we split the bounty in half between us. So if you don't love it and you're not passionate about it, you're not going to make a dime on it. And even then, nobody's getting rich off of it. But there is some financial aspect to it for sure. Yeah. Try to sustain yourself. (laughs) Yeah. But then you got, uh, I mean, you've parlayed it into other things like taxidermy and, and yep. I don't know, other, uh, other pursuits I would imagine. And then you, uh, you've got your gig at the, at the park. So most, most people that are doing it professionally probably have some other job that they're also doing. Yeah. I only know one person right now who's, doing it as like a full full full-time job with no side hustles and um yeah i mean he's he's doing better than the other people because he's taking it as a full-time job but again he ain't he's not buying a yacht (laughs) right and and when you if you were to take it as a full-time job would you still only hunt certain times of the day or could you would you be like well if i didn't have a job i would i would hunt from morning until night like I mean, what is there, is there like the most productive time and that's just, you're just going to take it more seriously and you're going to be out there more nights or, or what? I mean, if you are trying to take it as a full-time job, there's something to be said about running the clock. Um, but for me, it's always calculated in terms of the movement of the animals. It just kind of depends. Like we noticed that with our summertime movements, although they move fairly strong through most of the night, there is a drop off after 3 a.m., where eh, your odds of catching become very marginal. Mm. And the same thing happens with the daytime activity. It's like there's, it's usually based on the sun angles. So there's, there'll be a window like in the morning when the sun hits this angle, we're good. They'll be here. But by the time it hits this angle, all those snakes are going back into hiding. Mm. So when we pass that threshold, call it, go home, it's probably not worth it. But eh, it, the, the time frames vary throughout the entire year. Wow. How do you manage the no sleep? Like when you're staying out till three in the morning and then you, then you have another job, right? Like, I mean, and I'm sure that's what yeah. a lot of people are doing. They're balancing this. Like they, they do this because they're, they're passionate about it or maybe they're trying to make extra money, but still you're out there until one or two or three o'clock in the morning. And I mean, that's when you stop hunting. So what, yeah. you got an hour drive back home. Um, yep. Like, so how does that, how does that, how do you balance that? Well, first and most important thing is my bedroom is a cave. I literally have blacked out all the windows with tinfoil, black cloth over them. Like, my room is so blacked out that the first time that my girlfriend slept over, well, now ex-girlfriend, but we're still friends. Everything's good. (laughs) But uh, the first time that she slept over, she was like, it's so dark in here. I'm actually uncomfortable. Like, can we put like a nightlight on or something? I was like, yeah, I got you plugged one in but uh that really i didn't realize how much of a difference it makes but when you get home at 7 a.m and you want to go to bed 
you I black out the whole room and I wear a sleep mask on top of that. So it's just dark, as dark as could be. And that makes a big, big difference. But also uh, my manager at uh, at Holiday Park with the Gators, he specifically told me, he was like, if you are hunting the night before, you have to call it off so you can still get eight hours of sleep because you, you can't have that risk in there. And you do not want to make mistakes in the gator pit so he was very strict about that and obviously i'm not perfect with that i have had nights where i'm out a little bit later than i wanted to be and i just a little groggy in the pit like what are we doing wrestling gators all right i got it (laughs) (laughs) but typically if i do work the next morning i won't hunt the night before that's my typical rule but if the snakes are moving i'm going right wow that's awesome, man. You got uh, you obviously know a tremendous amount about reptiles and snakes, and um, it's really cool to talk to you and and learn more because I don't I don't really know anything about yeah. it. It's fascinating though. It's a fascinating world of people that hunt them and the fact that they're this invasive apex predator that is loose and just like thriving in the Everglades. And that people like yeah. you go out there and get them. It's it's fascinating. I think it I think it's really interesting. And then I mean this these these animals like a two hundred pound snake, like yeah. it's just like I don't know. It's like it's it's crazy. But uh, people they they want to uh, learn more about what you do um, at Snakeaholic. That's the that's your Instagram. Is there other is there other ways to to follow what you do? Do you have YouTube or? Yeah, yeah, Snakeaholic is all my media, so it's, you know, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, all that stuff. I've just made it all the same across the board, got the trademark for Snakeaholic, so it's fully branded, and a lot of stuff is duplicated posts, but there is different stuff between different platforms also, so, like, my YouTube videos are, you know, much longer than my Instagram and TikTok and Facebook videos and stuff like that, so I try and split it up. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that kind of passion for this stuff, man, it's, it runs deep Mm -hmm. and I've been working, I'd like to say this all the time. I've been working with captive Burmese pythons since I was 11 years old. And I started working with snakes when I was seven years old. So I love snakes. You know, it's not, it has nothing to do with, you know, like, ah, evil snakes. No, I love them a hundred percent. It has nothing to do with snakes, the removal of the Burmese python. It's that it's an invasive species, and particularly an apex predator that kills our native wildlife. So that's why I'm in on it. But the whole lifetime of growing up catching snakes for fun, taking photos of them, videos, letting them go, all that was like training to make me into the alpha Burmese python hunter that I've built myself into over the past couple of years. That's so cool, man. deep-seated passion for it that's so cool well uh i appreciate you coming on and telling us all all these cool stories and um if you want to uh follow snakeaholic at snakeaholic that's the that's the place to go and uh hope you get a lot of new followers you should definitely check him out man he's got lots of lots of cool stuff on his uh on his instagram kevin thanks for being on and uh we'll have you on again yeah sounds good Dom. appreciate it right on man thanks see you